We're going to do a quick review of last week when I taught. The first question I want to hit with you guys is how many Herods span the, the writing of the New Testament? You guys remember? Yeah, Ted gets it. Four. Good job. What is Herod Antipas most remembered for? Does anybody remember that? Herod Antipas. I think Stacy answered that last week, so she's frozen. What did Herod Antipas do? What got him into the New Testament? Do you remember? Remember, uh, he had somebody dance in front of him? And John the Baptist. Good job, Ian. I always depend on Ian. Good job. He had John the Baptist beheaded, right? Um, what is Herod the Great remembered for? Yeah, Brian. He's the great architect. Yeah, and he's the one. Remember in the, the story of the birth of Yeshua in the book of Luke? What did he have done? The Magi come and they're like, yeah, they had all the babies killed right in Bethlehem. Two years and younger, if I'm not mistaken, right? Uh, what is Herod Agrippa I remembered for? Remember, he's the guy in last week's reading. What did he do last week? Yes, thank you, Ian. He killed James. He had James uh, put to death by the sword. Um, if I were Ian's parents, I'd be very proud of him right now. <laughs> Who does Agrippa I have put to death with the sword? Ian? Everyone should say this, right? James, good, James. Uh, who was this disciple's brother from last week's reading? John was, remember? What were their nicknames? The sons of thunder, yeah. He calls them, the uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but also he calls them the, the sons of Regesh, the sons of thunder, right? They were, they were fiery, fiery, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Zealots, I guess, for their faith. This is an interesting tidbit I came across when studying this week. And I, I love studying for the book of Acts because I learned so much. I kind of do it selfishly because I learned so much just to, while I'm studying to teach you guys. But this is something I came across. It is generally agreed that Christians, having started with a few dozen, think about that, a few dozen, like less than 50, in 30 AD. Remember in the book of Acts, chapter 2, there was 120 it by, uh, made up 10% of the Roman Empire by 300 AD. Talk about expansive growth, right? And then by 350, give or take, that figure was over 30 million. 30 million followers of the Jewish rabbi, the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua of Nazareth, that now made up a clear majority of the Roman Empire by 350 AD. That is a profound movement, isn't it? Now you might think, well, yeah, that's very, you know, that's a lot of people and everything, but I wanted to come up with an analogy here to kind of put it in more perspective of how weird that would be for the Roman Empire to be comprised of a majority, there's the girls, to be comprised of a majority of, of Christians. So, as you guys know American history, you know the concept manifest destiny, right? When the uh, American culture was pushing west, especially in the 1840s, and you had the gold rush in San Francisco and all that. You had a lot of people. There was this big mass migration west into the North America, right? People wanted to see what's out there. They wanted to, to lay claim for the land out there. They wanted a piece of the fame and the gold and the, and the glory that was in the west, and they called that all manifest destiny. By doing that, you were manifesting the destiny of the American dream or whatever you want to call it. Well, one of the tribes that kind of gets swallowed up, one of the native tribes that kind of gets swallowed up by this manifest destiny, the Navajo. 
right? And they're predominantly down in the southwest. Well, picture this. This is kind of a crude analogy, and it's kind of not, not a perfect analogy, but can you imagine right now the president and the leader of the United States of America, and let's say all of North America, because you've got about 350 million people there, all of, all of us, 350 million, ascribe now to this faith, the Navajo faith. That would be weird, right? And think like 350, 320, 350 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, Emperor Constantine, whether well-intentioned, whether sincere or not, identifies himself with the faith of the Christians. Whether or not that was sincere is up for debate. But still, that is, that, that is huge. Can you imagine the leader of the United States of America, or the leader of NATO, adopting Navajo religious practices? And how weird that would seem? I think that that's kind of a similar way. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to convey to you the weirdness of the Roman Empire becoming a majority Christian. And how interesting that would be and awkward that would be for a lot of people, just 350 years into its history. And we owe a lot of that, much of that, to the man Paul, who went on three missionary journeys. And today we're going to learn about his first up until now, Paul has been in hiding, I guess we could say. He's been off the radar, definitely. He's been hiding out in Tarsus and Antioch. He's been keeping a low profile. For about 10, some say as much as 13 years, Paul is off the map. He, goes, he just goes away. And he's trying to maybe sort things out. He's coming to terms with the fact that he had many of these people put to death. That he was counter to this movement. And now he doesn't know how to fit having a real-life experience with the risen Messiah into his paradigm. And that would take a lot of time to kind of sort out, right? Plus, he has to gain the trust of these people that he feels compelled, maybe I can lead them. My knowledge of Scripture, my proficiency of the text, I can, you know, my proficiency of, the, of seafaring as a Pharisee, he would have been very used to this, and traveling far places to make proselytes and, and encourage people in the faith. How does that fit into his worldview and his theology? Well, it might take about 10 to 13 years to figure out. Well, Paul's going to come out swinging, as you're about to see. But before I get too far into it, I have worksheets here for kids uh, that want to take notes. Um, I did go by the trampoline park this week, and I got 20 more trampoline passes for free from them. Uh, Extreme Air, unlike the other trampoline, pa uh, other trampoline park, donates... I mean, they've probably donated 200 hours of trampoline park time to us. So um, if you are free one night and you're like, well, we want to go to the trampoline park. We don't know what, which one to go to. Jackie, tell Howard to take you to the extreme air, okay? That's the one you want to go to because they have been very generous. So I'm going to set these right here. And if you all want to take these or use them to take notes or whatever, um, you're welcome to come up and get one. Hannah, I know you needed one or whatever, but just grab those. You're not going to mess me up. I just want to make that known. Also, before I jump into this week's teaching, I know I'm I'm getting distracted here. In the mail uh, today, or yesterday, I should say, came uh, a new book by Rabbi Eric um, from Brit Om. Oh, there's that spider. Uh, it's called Colossians in Context. He sent me this book. He wanted me to read it and also tell you guys about it. So definitely check it out. It's very affordable on Amazon. If you want to look into that and learn more about the book of Colossians, you can do that. You can come look, flip through my book here um, after the teaching is over. So let's go to Acts chapter 13. Turn there with me in your Bible. Acts 13. 
We're picking up in the year 46 to 48, give or take. The year 46 to 48. And we're already 12 to 15 years into our movement, you could say. And we've got another 15 years until the end of the book of Acts. When Luke is like, okay, I've recorded all these events. I'm going to stop writing the book of Acts. We've got 15 more years ahead of us. So we're about at a midpoint, you can say, in, in the book of Acts and the events that transpire within it. And I put this map up here, and you can see Paul is going to start off here in Antioch, and he's going to go almost due west to the island of Cyprus, then over to Paphos, and he's going to cut north and go up into Asia Minor here. And some of these places, I just kind of want you to follow along spatially on this map as we read. So Acts 13. In Antioch, the ecclesia, uh, in, in the Antioch ecclesia, now your Bible might have church, your Bible might have synagogue, it might have congregation, it might have community. The Greek there is ecclesia. And I've been substituting that word in over and over and over because it's purposeful. I want you guys to learn that word ecclesia more than I want you to learn the translation. I, I want you to know, be familiar because I'm going to be teaching a lot about that word ecclesia here um, in the coming weeks. And, uh, and how important that is that we know the original language, the original word behind that. The ecclesia, there were these um, prophets. Now, the Greek word there for prophets is exactly like you see in English almost. It's prophet, prophet, okay? And there were these uh, uh, teachers, which is, I know I'm not getting very far, but this is a really good, I, I think, good balance that Luke is trying to reveal to us about the congregation, the ecclesia in Antioch, that there are prophets and that there are teachers, you ever been to a congregation when there's a, there's a lot of teachers and there's a lot of grounding in the word, but there are no prophets or there's no one who's really operating in the spirit and there's no like words of knowledge or exhortation or anything like that, no prophetic kind of things going on. Um, and that is a gift of the spirit, right? Well, have you ever been in the opposite where there's a lot of prophetic, there's a lot of charisma, there's a lot of dreams and things and all kinds of revelation and, and there's a lot of people coming in and just spewing a lot of stuff, but there's very little grounding in the word. And I think you have to strike that really good balance. There's, there has to be people in our congregation who are really grounded in the word. And there's people who are operating and in, in really grounded in the spirit and, and able to give a word of knowledge or give a word of prophecy. And that's a very good balance to strike. If you get out of balance, bad things happen either way. This is a, it's like two really good sides of a great coin. So there is Barnaba, Shimon, known as the Black or Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, Menachem, who had been brought up with Herod, the governor, and Shaul, Saul. One time, when they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set aside for me Barnaba and Shaul for the work I have called them. Again, ascribing, Luke is ascribing personhood to the Holy Spirithood, the, the Holy Spirit here, by saying, The Holy Spirit said to them, After fasting and praying, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Why are they going to the, the the pain of putting their hands on them. You know, they're not socially distancing, are they? <laughs> Why are they putting their hands on them before sending them out? It's like a commissioning, yeah. It's like if you go back to the book of Numbers, if you go back um, to when uh, Moses is appointing the 70 elders, it's always this pattern, a very biblical pattern of putting hands on them, praying for them, and then sending them out. It's a transference of authority from one person to another saying, I approve of this person and what they're about to do in the message that is contained within them, okay? It's a very biblical thing. Now, the Greek word there for send them off is the word, apel, uh, I'm sorry, apelison, which is like where we get the word uh, apostle. 
Apostle, okay? They're they are apostling them. They're sending them out. That's what apostle means, is to send out, okay? Um, so we could say, like, Jim and Keitha Langley would be like apostles so much, so to speak. Like, we sent them out with our prayer, with our um, support and backing. And this is still done in Judaism today. This is a very Jewish thing to do, actually. Uh, especially within the Chabad movement, um, Hasidic, some Hasidic circles, you actually will ordain what they call shlachim. A shlachim are a, usually two couples that they send out to start a, with the nucleus of the Hasidic uh, way of life, the Hasidic Jewish way of life. They'll go and they'll start what's called a Chabad house. Okay, usually in bigger cities, you will have a Chabad house. So this couple will go and they'll rent a house or maybe buy a house with the help of the Chabad organization. And that will be like a central hub. They'll use it as a synagogue. They'll use it as a place where you can uh, go to classes. You can celebrate the Jewish holy days and things of that nature. But that Chabad house was started by what the Hasidic world calls shlachim or sent ones. So that is still done today within Judaism and done to a certain extent within Christianity. Verse 4. So these two, after they had been sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. After landing in Salamis, they began proclaiming the Logos of God in the synagogues. And that's synagogian there, okay? It's just like you see in the English. With uh, John Mark as an assistant. And thus they made their way through the whole island. They ended up in Paphos, you can see on the map behind me there, where they found a Jewish magon and a pseudo-prophet. And that, that, those words pseudo-prophet there almost exactly as they appear in the Greek. His name was Bar Yeshua. He had attached himself to the governor, Sergius Pallas, who was an intelligent man. Now the governor had called for Barnaba and Shaul, or Saul, and was anxious to hear the message about God. But the sorcerer, who had two names, Elemas and Bar Yeshua, for that is what his name translates to. Now, Elemas maybe comes from the Arabic Alim, which is like a learned one or a wise one. So it's like a, uh, a, a Hellenized Arabic name. Okay, it's like Elemas. It's like Elimas, the learned one, the wise one. So he opposed them, doing his best to turn the governor away from the faith. Let's pause here and talk about um, the ancient synagogue before I jump into this too much. This is uh, an ancient synagogue that is uncovered in the suburbs of modern-day Rome. And this dates back to the first and second centuries. This is the kind of the floor plan as you can see it here. And I'm going to give extra credit opportunity to someone who can tell me why they're in most ancient synagogues and even many synagogues today, you have freestanding pillars, usually four. I'll give you extra credit if you can tell me next week about that. But this is some of the columns, the artwork on the columns. Uh, can I get a volunteer to turn off the light, the, the front lights up here? Do you, what do you see here? Seven branch menorah with these curved branches. You can barely make it out here, but there is a palm branch. There is a citron, a citrus fruit. Thank you, guys. And there is a shofar. So obviously these are symbols, a palm branch and a citrus fruit are symbols of Sukkot. And then the shofar would be a symbol of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. So very interesting uh, symbolism. I mean, some of the same symbolism we have here in our midst, right, in, in our possession. But this is a, a drawing of this floor plan of the Ostia Synagogue that is in the suburbs of Rome. And you can see the floor plan. And I wanted to give you a spatial imagery of as Paul 
and his traveling companions step foot into a synagogue in the ancient world, what it would have looked like, what it would have been like to be part of that worship experience. Because sometimes we just kind of draw a blank and we think about maybe stepping foot in our local church or whatever, and we don't really know. I'm going to fill in that blank for you and show you that most of the synagogues in the ancient world look just like this, and that was on purpose. A lot of them were purposefully uniform in their architecture and design. It was all designed after the temple, by the way. So as you walked in, uh, this would be like a little bima here where uh, you know, someone would read from the scroll and someone would read from the scroll the, the Torah, the prophets. Then uh, this was maybe a place where they would hold those scrolls in a very uh, significant place. And again, here are the four freestanding pillars in the synagogue that I said like are in most synagogues. This is a, a reconstruction of their Torah arc, okay? And again, like if you're growing up in a faith and you're growing up in an era where not everyone has a personal copy of the Bible, like everybody in this room probably has around, uh, gosh, maybe upwards of half a dozen Bibles in their homes. That would have been completely unheard of at the time. The only place you had access to the oracles of God were here in the local synagogue. And the only place suitable to store the oracles of God would be in a cabinet just like I store the nicest dishes in my home in a china cabinet. I don't just put them with all the other paper plates. So we're going to put the oracles of God in the cabinet it's like this. And in here, there would be different layers. You would have the Torah, you would have the prophets, and you would have the writings. In Hebrew, we call that Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And that's an acronym. We say Tanakh. Tanakh. And that is a short acronym that encapsulates what many in the Christian world call the Old Testament. So in here, you would have various copies of the Torah and then various copies of the, of the prophets, and you have various copies in a library of the writings like Psalms and Proverbs and so on, okay? And so on a Shabbat, the, the rabbi or the learned person, the president of the synagogue would get up there. They would open these scrolls. They would read from them. And then they would give a drosh on what was read, okay? And kind of interpret or translate and then explain, okay, this is how we do these things. Or this is what maybe this meant here, okay? But I wanted to give you a spatial um, understanding of what that is. But let me talk real quick about magic now. We're shifting over back to our friend Elymas, or Bar Yeshua, who was a magician. The Greek describes him as a magon. There's a great paper called Roman Law and Magic which was written by this Abigail Preston from Portland State University. She did a, a thesis uh, on Roman law and magic. Magic was ingrained within the Roman culture and the Roman way of life. You may not think that, but it was so ingrained in the Roman way of life that it actually, are you guys familiar with the 12 tablets of Roman law that were in the Roman forum in Rome? Is anybody familiar with the 12 tablets? Okay, good, good. All right. So within Roman law were what are called the 12 tablets. And these were probably bronze tablets. They disappeared somewhere um, much later in Rome's history. But they are definitely present right now as we're reading this. They sat in the forum where the Roman Senate would gather and make laws and, and adjudicate different cases. Well, these 12 tablets were kind of like our Ten Commandments, you could say. They, were, they outlined Roman law and way of life for every Roman and kind of solidified and fossilized, you know, the rights of citizens, how to adjudicate different cases, property rights. 
they were kind of like the 12 like bullet points of Roman equity and law. And on one of these 12 uh, tablets was a prohibition against cursing people or against, uh, we could say, um, invoking curses on people. They didn't want that. They said, no, you cannot invoke curses on people. Well, people did it anyways in the Roman Empire. And this is an example of one of these curses. It was so common in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, that um, there is a place in London, a town called Bath. Anybody ever heard of Bath before? Yeah. It's, the, it's the birthplace of a famous author, Jane Austen. Winking at Stacy because she likes Jane Austen. But in Bath, there is a, uh, a hot spring. And people would go there and bathe in these things. There's a hot well there. And uh, during the Roman occupation, uh, people would actually get these lead tablets and they would write curses on these tablets and then throw them into these hot springs in the town of Bath uh, in England. Did I say London earlier? I England. They would throw them into these hot springs. Well, it was just a matter of going through as archaeologists were kind of like learning more about these and they would go down to the bottom and they would drudge up the bottom of these things and they found 130 of these curses that were etched onto, onto lead tablets in the, in the bottom of this hot spring. And many times they're rolled up and they're thrown in there. So what you would do, let's say I wanted to invoke a curse on somebody or let's say I'm going to court or let's say, you know, I feel like somebody stole something from me but I'm not sure. I would go to like a local shaman, let's call him, although that's not what the Romans called him, and I would pay him a sum of money or her a sum of money, and I would say, can you, because you have familiarity, you're a magon, you have familiarity with the dark arts, can you help me invoke a curse on this person? And here's an example of that. Um, it actually, uh, let me see if there's an explanation. There isn't an explanation, but I think this one, uh, someone stole clothing from another person. This is one woman invoking a curse on another woman because she feels that she stole clothing from her. Isn't that interesting? And so you would throw this into this well and it thought to be like that would, that would affect them somehow and that they would go blind or that they would have some kind of ailment or they would have no success in their business. And that was so common in the Roman world. So much so that there was actually a general, uh, there, was, there was actually this, this, it was a whole ritual I should say, called uh, devotio. Anybody ever heard of that? where you basically, you go to the, the Roman high priest and you tell the high priest, I want to make, as a Roman general, I want to make devotio. And it's where we get the word devotion from. And what you're saying is the, 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 the high priest would then invoke on you as the general all these negative curses. He would curse you and fill you and say, all the bad luck in the world, so to speak, go upon this general. And then the general would commit himself to die in battle, but then go to the underworld and fight the, the uh, forces in the underworld as a general. So he's doing this and saying, I want to give my life in battle, the battle that's coming up maybe tomorrow or something. I know that I'm going to die, but the person who kills me and the forces who kill me, they will open up all of these curses that have been put upon me, and they will have to experience all these curses. We will be victorious in battle, and then I will go into the underworld. I give my life to the underworld, and then I'll fight these forces in the underworld. And that was very common, so much so that some of the, some of the, um, the, the enemies of Rome said, if you see a general suicidally charging into our lines, don't kill him. Let him live. And they actually, Roman history records, 
that this was 100% successful. That anytime a general did devotio, it was 100% successful in, 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 their, in their, uh, their efforts. Interesting, right? You got to understand that this was going on in the Roman world at the time, very much on the forefront of their minds. So let's keep going with Elemis here, our friend Elemis. So he's opposing them, and then Shaul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elemis, the sorcerer, the Magon, and he said, You are a son of Satan, full of fraud and evil, you enemy of everything good. Won't you ever stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Where is he quoting from there? Anybody find that? He's quoting from Proverbs 10, verse 9. He says, Now look, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and while for a while you will be blind, unable to see the sun. And immediately mist and darkness came over Elemis, and he groped about, trying to find someone to lead him by the hand. Then, on seeing what had happened, the governor trusted and astounded by the teaching about the Lord. He was astounded by the teaching. This is interesting to me because this is Paul's first miracle. Paul is right out of the shoe. He's starting this first missionary journey. And he is like interacting with the miraculous realm for the first time. And what does he do? Strike someone blind. What happened to Paul just 10, 13 years prior to this? He gets struck blind, doesn't he? He can relate to this, can't he? And it's interesting, I think Paul is really, uh, my kids, my, my students would say triggered, because Elemis represents not just this uh, random magician moving around in the, in the Roman world, but he represents a syncretism of the dark arts and the, and the dabbling in the magical realm and the pure Torah faith. And this Elemis has combined the two and has polluted Paul's faith. And Paul stands up and says, not only are you contradicting us, but now you're like a son of Satan. You're making crooked the straight ways, aren't you? So having set sail, verse 13, from Paphos, Saul and his companions arrived at Perga and Pamphylia. And there, Yochanan, or John, Mark, he left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now this is a big deal, uh, because he's going back to Jerusalem, potentially where his mother is located, where his family is located. He's leaving the trip early. This is gonna bother Paul. Paul. Paul is deeply troubled by this. And it's actually gonna cause a rift in the relation between Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and Paul. And you can see this eventually gets healed in Colossians chapter four, verse 10. And Paul mentions it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. But there's, right here, Paul feels like Mark is almost like chickening out. He's leaving, he's going back to Jerusalem. It could be, we don't really know why. It could be there was a health crisis in Mark's family back in Jerusalem. It could be that Mark was really kind of shook up by the things that he had seen so far. We don't really know. But we know that Paul was, was, was deeply bothered by this. It says in verse 14, But the others went on from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. There's two Antiochs, okay? And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down, okay? So picture that synagogue I just put up here a little while ago. They're going in here and they're sitting down. After reading from the Torah and the prophets, the synagogue leaders sent them a message. Brothers, if any of you has a word of exhortation for the people, speak. So Saul stood up and he motioned with his hands 
And he said, now let's pause here. And I have a question to pose to you guys about this. You may think, well, why, is, why are they just giving the microphone over to Paul? You know, this random guy who walks into a synagogue. Because I believe that they knew who he was. He is a student of Gamaliel, and he's walking in. Let me, let me pose it this way. I'm getting way out of order here. If Franklin Graham walked into Ridgecrest Baptist Church tomorrow morning, would they recognize him? Definitely. Yeah, we have TV and all that stuff, but definitely they would recognize him. What do you think, what would that look like? If Franklin Graham walked into Ridgecrest Baptist Church, the son of the great uh, Billy Graham, and he sits on the back row at Ridgecrest Baptist Church, what would the pastor of the church do? He would acknowledge him, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. He might say, whoa, this is unexpected. And, you know, the ushers might come up or deacons, hey, did you see Franklin Graham is sitting on the back row? Right? He, you know, he's not drawing any attention to himself. He's just like, and people are like, there's Franklin Graham, do you see him? Do you see him? I, I met his dad. I went to one of his dad's like crusades and revivals. I was born again under his dad's ministry, and, right? And then eventually the pastor of Ridgecrest would get up and he would say, um, it has come to my attention that Franklin Graham, Reverend Franklin Graham, the son of Billy Graham, is sitting in our midst. I would like to give him a moment to stand up and to greet everyone. And if he has any words of encouragement or teaching that he would like to, basically he's like, I'm bowing out right now. Franklin Graham is in our midst. I want him to come up here and speak to you guys, right? He's someone of great notoriety. And I think that's kind of the vibe that you get as we go into the synagogue and Paul sits down. Here is someone coming from the feet of Gamliel, the great Gamliel, from the holy city of Jerusalem. And he's sitting down in the back of this, we could say, podunk synagogue. And he's kind of playing it nonchalant. Well, they made the mistake, didn't they, of saying, Paul, hi, we heard you were in town. Would you like to share with us some words? So Paul takes them up on it, doesn't he? He says, men of Israel and Phobominos, the God-fearers, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. He made the people great during the time when they were living as aliens in Egypt. And with a stretched out arm, he led them out of the land. For some 40 years, he took care of them in the desert. And after he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land to this people as an inheritance. All this took place about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges down to the prophet Samuel. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. That's Paul's tribe as well. After 40 years, God removed him and raised up David as a king for them, making his approval known with these words, I found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want. In keeping with his promise, God has brought to Israel from this man's descendants a deliverer, Yeshua. Uh-oh, now he's getting into some interesting waters, isn't he? Now, before the coming of Yeshua, Yochanan, John, proclaimed to all the people of Israel an immersion in connection with turning from God to sin. We call that repentance, right? But as Yochanan was ending his work, he said, why do you suppose, what do you suppose I am? Well, I am not. But after me is coming someone, the sandals of whose feet I'm worthy to untie. How did Paul know this? How did Paul know to quote this? He probably heard these stories, right? Verse 26, brothers, sons of Abraham, and those among you who are Phobominos, the God-fearers, the Gentiles who turn to God, it is to us that the message of this deliverance has been sent. For the people living in Yerushalayim and their leaders did not recognize who Yeshua was 
or understand the message of the prophets read every Shabbat. So they fulfilled that message by condemning him. They could not find any legitimate ground for death sentence. Nevertheless, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all the things written about him, he was taken down from the stake and placed in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He appeared for many days to those who had come up with him from the Galil to Jerusalem, And they are now his witnesses to the people. As for us, we are bringing to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled for us, the children, in raising up Yeshua, as indeed it is written in the second Psalm. Now Paul is quoting from memory here. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And as for his raising him up from the dead to return to decay no more, he said, now he's quoting again scripture from memory, I will give the holy and the trustworthy things of David to you. This is explained elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. For David did serve God's purpose in his own generation. But after that, David died. He was buried with his fathers and he saw decay. However, the one God raised up did not see decay. Therefore, brothers, let it be known to you that through this man is proclaimed the forgiveness of sins. That is, God clears everyone who puts his trust in this man, even in regard to all the things concerning which you could not be cleared by the Torah of Moses. What could you not be cleared of by the Torah of Moses? Hmm. We'll talk about a different time. We don't have time to live right now. But verse 40, watch out then so that this word found in the prophets may not happen to you. In other words, he's saying, be careful. Don't reject this message, right? Now he's about to quote, uh, what is he about to quote? Habakkuk 1.5. He says, you mockers, look and marvel and die. For in your own time, I am doing a work that you simply will not believe, even if someone explains it to you. As they left, the people invited Saul and Barnabas to tell them more about these matters the following Shabbat. When the synagogue meeting broke up, many of the born Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul, Saul, and Barnabas, who spoke with them and urged them to keep holding fast to the love and kindness of God. So the next Shabbat, nearly the whole city gathered together to hear the Logon, the Logos, about God. But when the Jews, who had not believed, saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and spoke up against what Saul was saying and insulted him. Can you just imagine this picture? Like, let's take um, the local synagogue, the Reformed synagogue here in town, uh, Beth, uh, Temple Beth Emmanuel. Temple Emmanuel. Uh, imagine uh, their membership. You know, suddenly there is a great rabbi from Jerusalem that sits in the back. Okay, this all plays out, right? And they invite him to come speak. And he shares a great message about Yeshua. And the, the attendees there in Temple Emmanuel are like, oh, wow, this all makes sense, right? And the next, they say, stay with us the next Shabbat. And the next Shabbat, half of Dothan shows up. And many of them, most of whom are not Jews. And they're like, what is going on? And they become a little bit jealous. Of, Wait a second, this is our Messiah. This is our, this is, these are our scriptures. This is our synagogue. And you want to come and have a part in this? Right? That would invoke like a sense of jealousy. Well, it says uh, in verse 45, but when the Jews who had not believed saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and spoke up against what Saul was saying and insulted him. Verse 46, however, Saul and Barnabas answered boldly. It was necessary that God's word be spoken to you first, but since you are rejecting it 
and are judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're now turning to the Gentiles. For that is what the Lord has ordered us to do. Where did the Lord order them to do that? Isaiah 49. He says, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles to be deliverance to the ends of the earth. Well, the Gentiles were very happy to hear this. They honored the Logan about the Lord, the message about the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life came to trust. And the message, the Logan, about the Lord was carried throughout the whole region. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the women and the Phobominos, the God-fearers, of high social standing, and the leading men of the city. And they organized a persecution against Saul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. However, Saul and Barnabas, they shook the dust off their feet, just like Yeshua says in Matthew chapter 10 to do, and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Luke is making a natural transition. He's saying like, wait, this chapter is closing here. He's about to, he's about to transition to something else here. But I got a question for you guys. Um, why is Paul targeting these cities? Is Paul just wandering around arbitrarily looking for a city that'll take him in, looking for a, a synagogue that'll take him in? Why is he moving around these different cities? Yeah, Suzanne. He may have had connections there. May have had connections there. Yeah. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, yeah, very good. When the Romans came in in 63 BC and conquered the land of Judea, they took hundreds of thousands of Jews into slavery with them. Where did they take them? Into Asia Minor. So let's fast forward now, almost 100 years after that dispersion. These people have had almost 100 years. Fast forward 100 years into like DMF's time, let's say. You know, our kids have grandkids, and they have kids, and they have kids. And it's like we have this like very well-established, entrenched community, this Jewish community in a synagogue in this little town where we were, you know, once brought and carried to as slaves. Now these people are all free. They're no longer slaves. But Paul knows they are there. So that's why he's targeting these cities. Where do Paul and his companions first go on his journey when entering a city? Yeah, the synagogue. Yeah, notice they don't just go into the open town square. They don't go to the market. They don't go to like a pagan temple. The first place they go is a synagogue. Why? All life revolves around it, yeah. To the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Yeah, those are true. It's a house of gathering, yeah. Adrian? It seems that other than Yeah, yeah. It seems like maybe there was more acceptance in Gentiles going to the synagogue, so maybe he was able to get a broader and more varied audience, perhaps. Yeah, that's definitely not untrue. Anything else? He's a Jew. Yeah. He's going to go to where there's more Jews, perhaps. But why is he going to the synagogues? Like, what is his ultimate motivation? You guys are all making good points. Here's, here. yeah, Darlene. To convert them, to share the gospel with them, Yes, to, to share the gospel with them, and I don't want to say, like, convert them out of their Judaism, because that's definitely not his goal, but to share the gospel with them, why share the gospel with them? Yeah. Messiah's come, and why is that important, Suzanne? Well, because Stephanie said this. <laughs> you're, you're talking for Stephanie. You're Stephanie's Aaron. 
Yeah. That's what Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's repeating that pattern. But even bigger than that, I want you to think about who Paul is and how well-versed he is in the prophets. And what is the expectation of the Messiah? To reunite, to regather. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. Involves regathering. Isaiah 49.6. Remember, he quotes this in that synagogue, doesn't he? Well, if we back up a verse from where Paul quoted, this is how it goes. It's too small of a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. Paul invokes this verse in that synagogue. So why is Paul taking the message to the synagogues? Because that's where the tribes of Jacob and that's where those of Israel that he has kept are waiting for the Messiah. They're sitting in their synagogues, Shabbat after Shabbat, hearing the Torah, hearing the prophets, hearing the writings read, waiting for what? The Messiah to come. What will the Messiah do? And how will we know that he has come? The, a herald will walk into our midst and the herald will say, the Messiah has come. Here, let me give you credentials. He has fulfilled this prophecy. He has fulfilled that prophecy. We condemned him. He rose from the grave. He's come. But Paul knows his scripture, doesn't he? And he knows that they must reject it. But that rejection will bring salvation and a light to the Gentiles. So Paul, that's why he's going into the synagogues. It's such a bigger picture than that. But what were these people's Bible? Did they have like a good ESV? They have a study Bible? They had the scrolls. They had the Tanakh, right? The Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, right? They had the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And that will primarily be their Bible for the next couple hundred years. Think about that. They didn't have this part of their Bibles that is called the New Testament, per se. They didn't have iPads, definitely not. So as Paul is going in, notice he's not just like shooting from the hip here. What is he doing? He's quoting scripture that they have heard over and over and over, isn't he? He's invoking all these passages that they, for generations, almost 100 years now, have been reading in that synagogue. And he's not just like kind of just going off on his own tangent. Anybody count how many scripture references he made in there? A bunch, yeah. Maybe corresponding with the weekly Torah portion, perhaps. Yeah, there's, there's probably 12 to 15 scriptural references in there alone. But he's just reaming off from memory like that. And I, I hope that I someday can get to the point where I can do that. Where I can share the gospel, but not just share it in a way that like I'm just firing at the hip. But where I can use scripture and I can interweave scripture into my message that I'm delivering to a person. It's so important that we can be able to do that. But these are some lessons that I took from Acts chapter 13. I know it's really small, but let me read them out to you. You will sometimes learn, and I've learned this, that in your efforts to share the gospel, the audience that you think needs it is not the audience that God wants you to share it with. Make sense? The, the audience you think you need to deliver it to is not the audience God wants you to deliver it to. I've many a times... I just, I mean, like last year, year before last, um, I think it was when COVID first happened, I was having this very long conversation. It, it turned into almost a one-way shouting match with a woman. And I was very calm, very respectful. Um, but eventually she storms off. And uh, 
um, she was just had deep, deep hurt from church in the past and stuff. And this random guy walks up, who I didn't even know was there, just come out of nowhere, and he's like, hey, I want to let you know I overheard everything you guys were saying. And what you were saying just blew me away. And he, he, was, he was the audience. I'm talking to this person, engaging with this person, but the audience is over here. And I had no idea the audience was even there. So keep that in the forefront of your minds as you're sharing the gospel, as you're, as you're, as you're going forth with the message. Sometimes, point number two I learned, the most difficult audience to reach with the message, with the gospel, is not the sick who know that they need a doctor, but it's the sick who believe they don't. Oftentimes, those come in the form of very religious people. All right? Remember that as well. Suzanne? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're the sick who believe they don't need healing, right? Point number three I learned, dabbling in magic, the dark arts, as innocent as it may seem, has no place in our homes, has no place in our schools, or has no place in our entertainments. This stuff is very subtle. It comes off very innocent. But I'll tell you, it is real. It's very real. I can prove it to you. Come with me to Uganda when I go next, and I'll show you people who dabble in the dark arts and what that does and how that messes up their families. I'll take you to Haiti and show you some of the people who dabble in voodoo and how that really messes up their lives. It's there. It's real. And we've done this very interesting thing in America. We've commercialized it, and we've prettied it up, right? And we use it to make a lot of money, but it doesn't make it any less potent. It doesn't make it any less real. It doesn't make it any less evil. It does not have a place in our homes. Our homes should be solely dedicated and consecrated to the spirit of the living God. And those things have no place in our homes. So a prayer that you might pray, an application you might have with this, is to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those things in your home. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to convict you of certain things that maybe you've been dabbling in and you had no, you had no, had no idea that it had a connection to that realm. And then just get rid of them. Destroy them. We're going to see later in the book of Acts here that there were people who were dabbling in the magic arts and they take all of their scrolls that contain all the incantations and spells and they take them out in the streets. They don't resell them. They don't donate them to goodwill they light them up on fire. We're talking tens of thousands of dollars worth of material here, torched. Point number four I learned. Acts 13 represents a pivot point in the evangelistic efforts of Paul. In other words, it's time for the Gentiles to shine. We're going to see throughout the rest of the book of Acts, Paul is going to be focused on, he's going to, he's going to take the message to the synagogues, he's going to take a message to the Jews, but you're going to see time and time again that it's going to be the Gentiles who latch on for some reason. Right now, we're entering the time where we could say, prophetically speaking, I, not really prophetically speaking, but the typology, let's say, of Joseph going into Egypt. Remember that story? Joseph becoming the savior of the Egyptian empire. That is kind of happening right now. We're seeing the very beginnings of that. All right, and it's about to grow larger and larger. But what did you guys learn? Let me go to you all and see what you learned in your reading today. 
possessive attitude of it yeah which we're gonna get into in Acts 15 a little bit and, and grapple with that as well and don't 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 think I forgot remember the question I asked yesterday why did why did Peter live but James died don't think I forgot that I remembered that I hope that you have been thinking about that and praying and studying on it yourself but yeah Stacy Yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, I'm going to try to tell it, but you fill in the gaps. Uh, there, I was in Lakeland, Florida, and I was asking these guys for directions. No? I, I was talking to them? They asked me for directions. Oh. You just need to tell the story. That's right. Okay, okay. That's why I have no recollection of the story because I was not involved in the story. Uh, okay, so these. For the trees, yeah. 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 And the, the Jewish people still 
kind of being like just shocked by it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, Michael. Uh, just to add out the question, but I think it's kind of like they don't really know about Yeshua. They're just they're not told that there are, mm -hmm. you know, people who not only are Christians but they follow our Torah as well. Yeah, yeah. It's Anya. Um, it just came to me um, about the dabbling in magic. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, remember, okay, so Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they're, you know, he's showing signs and wonders, but the magicians came and showed the same signs and wonders. Mm. And so, oh, I went to somebody's house one day and burnt my hand. And my husband said, oh, go let my wife say something under your hand. It looks like you're burning it. Oh, no. And I said, well, are you going to pray for me? And she was like, yeah, there's something she said, and she can't tell you what it is, but it was. Mm. Mm. And he's a believer. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, but it worked. Yeah. And so I'm like, of course it works, and you never get into it. So I was able to actually mm -hmm. sit down with the lady and say, do you realize what you're looking at? She's like, no, I didn't. Yeah. Um, so there was yeah 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 and i think you know we get to a point sometimes in our lives or our movement where we're so desperate for an interaction with divine or a word or a message from the divine or some kind of miracle or supernatural sign that we will drop our guard down in our discernment and say oh well that little thing on that board moved that must be god actually trying to communicate to me it's like, no, <laughs> that's, put your guard back up. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. We should, never, we should never lose our discernment because of our desperation for a sign or a, an interaction with the supernatural realm. So, Sarah, this is, I think, your inaugural comment on a Shabbat, isn't it? Am I wrong? You don't know. I feel like we should all applaud for you right now. No. Yeah, you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And you're saying so people, and I want to make sure I understood it correctly. You're saying people, many people who dabble in that, they're seeking some kind of control over their life that is out of control, or they have a lot of things around their life, swirling around their life that seem out of control. And so it's for them a way to gain control of some facets of their life. But then it inadvertently opens up a door to a realm that, that brings them a lot of, a lot more chaos and a lot more uncontrolled. Yeah, good, good point. Yeah, Suzanne. There's also now, recently, that I've encountered Orthodox rabbis that are actually teaching that there's going to be a movement of the Gentiles coming into Torah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like I was, um, I bring up the story a lot. I apologize if you guys have heard it before, but sitting on a plane, maybe between two Hasidic Jews coming back from Tel Aviv. And yeah, I was, one of them was reading a uh, Torah portion of Nitzavim. And uh, I look over and I'm like reading it and I can, you know, can read the Hebrew and everything. So I mentioned to him, oh yeah, did you like this part, this part, this part? And he's reading the commentary on Nitzavim. And he just kind of like slowly looks at me and he's like, 
but I, I mentioned to him, yeah, you know, I, I'm familiar with the Torah portion, the parasha, and, you know, we keep Shabbat and stuff. And he's like, but you're, you're not Jewish. And I was like, no, I wasn't born Jewish or anything. Like, well, why do you do that? <laughs> and I was like, well, because I, when I read my Bible, I see that um, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, came not to abolish that, but to draw people to it. And, uh, yeah, his response was like, well, how many more are there of you? <laughs> but then he asked, he was very uh, hopeful that, like, he's like, so, so do you drive on Shabbat? And I was like, yes. And he's like, do you turn on lights on Shabbat? I was like, yes. And he's like, okay, so you don't keep it. And he's like, it's good. It's good that you break it. Because it's actually not good that a Gentile observe the Shabbat like we observe Shabbat. So he had that element of jealousy almost with it. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Before I forget, though, there's another, I like to bring to you guys materials that I study throughout the week. Um, this is called the Ruling Class of Judea, and it is the origins of the Jewish revolt against Rome in AD 66 and 70. If you like biblical history, Roman history, this would be a great read to add to your library. I'll sit it up here and you can thumb through it. But any other questions or comments? Chris? Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Our words have power for sure. Yeah. I, I believe archaeologists a thousand years will find uh, like a hard drive and learn how to like open it up and read all the the crazy comments and Twitter stuff that we've put out there. Oh, this is how they came to their ruin. Okay, yeah. <coughs> Yeah, Michael. Uh, well, with the, uh, well, that was the Roman uh, Senate had in there, and it's interesting how our government is that way too. On the back of those doors, and when they close, the mm -hmm. are the same thing as Mormon doors. Mm -hmm. So the Senate or Congress or whoever is sitting there, when they're making laws and decisions, and they look up, they're looking directly at them. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, if only they would follow it. <laughs> yeah, there was a story back in, uh, I don't know what year, my mom just walked in, so maybe she can tell me when uh, Judge Moore was having the Ten Commandments in Montgomery, they were, uh, yeah, they, they were, I guess, is the ACLU was trying to get them removed from the courthouse in Montgomery, and I was like maybe a junior or senior in high school, and we went up there into a protest, and <laughs> I think I think my mom had left, or some, she wasn't there or something, and they were like, the organizer was like, we're looking for people who are willing to get arrested. And me, the 17-year-old kid, I was like, oh, yeah, me. So he's like, okay, well, come here, come here, everybody come here. And so there's several of us, and he's like, we need you to lay down in a row right here across the road in front of this tow truck. <laughs> it was like, so I was like, oh, I'll lay down. But it's funny, in that, you know, 17-year-old Gabe Rutledge, I'm like, don't think twice about, yeah. And you have kids and family. It's, I hope that would do the same thing today that I did then. But, but yeah, that was the Ten Commandments that were in the courthouse, and they eventually did get removed out of the courthouse, but. All right. Any other questions or comments? No? No? All right. Well, thank you all for your attention. Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to do the blessing over Kiddush here. Yeah. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word again in the history of our movement. Uh, may the things that we learn today encourage us and honor you, and may they bring clarity and not confusion. 
And I pray that as we read through the book of Acts, that we will find things that are applicable to us. And as we're navigating this weird, interesting time, and this tense political time, that we would be able to draw wisdom from this great book and the fathers of our faith. And we just ask for that your Ruach would move amongst us, that it would encourage us this week, and that the trials that we face and the sickness and the death and the hardships that we experience, that we would remember to give you glory and honor because you are worthy of it all. And Father, I lift up all those families that weren't with us today. Watch over them, keep them, protect them, and bring them back to us safely. We pray all this in the matchless name of Yeshua. Amen. We're going to do the blessing over the fruit of the vine. Before we do, your homework this week is to read Acts chapter 14 and to study the gods Zeus and Hermes. Wait, Gabe's telling us to study Greek mythology. Yeah. Um, I want you to be familiar with the mythology surrounding these two Roman deities, Zeus and Hermes, and be able to compare and contrast their nature with that of the God of Israel. That's your homework this week. It's a big task, isn't it? All right, let's say the blessing over the fruit of the vine.